0: This episode is sponsored by Faithful Counseling, and I'm so excited to let you know about this sponsor. Okay, so Faithful Counseling is a Christian-based online counseling center filled with over 3,000 U.S.-licensed therapists across all 50 states. Look, we all know God is always there for us, but sometimes things in this life can feel downright overwhelming. And it can be super beneficial for your mental, spiritual, and physical well-being to talk to a professional counselor. So Faithful Counseling is safe and private. You can get help on your own time and at your own pace. The professional counselors at Faithful Counseling, they specialize in many things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, Uh, Sleeping, I could use that. Uh, Crisis of faith, trauma, anger, family conflicts, grief, and self-esteem. Everything you share is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at no additional charge. And I love that the communication with your counselor is super flexible. You can text, you can chat, you can uh, call them on the phone or connect via video. And financial aid is available. So if you want to get started, go to faithfulcounseling.com com forward slash theology. And Theology in the Raw listeners will receive 10% off your first month. Okay, so that's faithfulcounseling.com forward slash theology. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. Registration for Exiles in Babylon 2023 is now open. March 23rd to 25th here in Boise, Idaho. You can attend live in Boise. There's 1,100 seats Open, um, but last year we did sell out. So if you do want to attend the Exiles of Babylon Conference in Boise, Idaho, live, you want to register sooner than later, you can also attend virtually as we did last year as well. So um, we're going to be talking about the future of the church, uh, disability in the church, multi ethnic uh, perspectives on American Christianity. And we're also going to have a conversational debate on the problem of evil and suffering. I'll release some of the speakers that we've already lined up maybe next by next month. Uh, we're still shoring up some speakers, but we have uh, another amazing lineup of thoughtful, raw Christian thinkers who are going, going to tackle some of these tough topics. Oh, also, uh, we do have 200 early bird uh, seats available. Okay, so once the 200 is gone, then the price is going to go up. Um, So if you want, if you know you're going to attend, take advantage of those 200, at least some of those 200 seats that are available at an early bird rate. All the info is uh, on our website, TheologyNarad.com. My guest today is my best friend, Dr. Joey Dodson, professor at Denver Seminary. Joey is working on a book on the interpretation of Romans 7, the famous passage where Paul talks about being overwhelmed with sin. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. This is Romans 7, 14 to 25, and then we'll jump into our conversation. Romans seven fourteen, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. For if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one who does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law when I want to do what is good. Evil is present with me for in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, The Law of Sin. That's from the Christian Standard Bible Translation. And uh, Joey and I are going to wrestle with this passage. The main question is, is Paul describing a believer or a non-believer here, or or more specifically, a pre-converted Jew? Or a post-converted, just, I guess, Christian, Jew or non-Jew. So yeah, that's what we're going to wrestle with. And we are going to let you know the correct interpretation of this passage. So please welcome back to the show for the 57th time or something like that, uh, the one and only Dr. Joey Dodson. Hey, Joey. What's up, man? How's it going? Welcome back. I think you lead the uh, most frequented guest on my podcast. You're kind of like the Joey Diaz of the El General. <laughs> for, for you Rogan fans out there. <laughs> Always an honor. <laughs> All right, dude. Well, hey, um, when we first met, uh, I remember I think within a few minutes, maybe, uh, maybe not minutes, maybe a few days, we started talking about Roman 7, and both of us were pretty elated that we both were kind of reading Roman 7 correctly. <laughs> Why? So, and, and I know you're working on a book, a whole book on the interpretation of Romans seven. And I mean, just to set it up for somebody who has no clue what we're even talking about. So, Romans seven is a famous passage where Paul talks about how he is just overwhelmed with sin, struggling to sin, not just struggling to sin, but like enslaved to sin. And there's nothing good in me, and woe is me. And it's it's become like I would say a key text for. Especially for like more reformed Christianity, would you say Protestant reformed where this kind of really, really low view of man, you know, um, of humanity. But, you know, if you and, and a lot of people read this passage and like resonate with it, like, yeah, you know, I, this is how I feel. I read the passage and it's like a mirror to my life. But if you look at the passage in context, it's not I'll be I'll try to be new, more neutral here. It's not super clear um, that he's talking about his post converted state. Uh, yeah at least there's there's um there's a debate about that and both you and I would end up saying yeah he's not not describing this is not describing a christian who's been filled with the holy spirit so um why don't we i, I want to do a deep dive cuz i mean it's a you know i like doing de- every once in a while in the all Gerard doing just a deep dive into scripture uh, get into the nitty gritty the exegetical stuff and um so i'd like to do that with romans 7 with you Does that sound good
1: yes let's do it
0: here we Let, go again. Um, did I just in my setting up the passage? Anything to add? Clarify? How would you set up the passage for somebody? For, again, for somebody that might be just vaguely familiar with what's going on there.
1: Yeah. Well, once again, the first rule of high cloud. I mean, the first rule of Bible interpretation is context, context, context. And uh, most people take Romans 7, 14 through twenty five especially out of context. And so you want to read Romans seven and lie to Romans five through eight and what Paul says in Romans six and what Paul says in Romans eight. Seemingly stands in stark contradiction, diametrically opposed to the wretch's condition in Romans 7. And so I think one of the things that sometimes hinders our interpretation is chapters and verses, uh, because we stop at, oh, what a wretch I am. Who delivered me from uh, this body of death? But uh, what does Paul say in 8 1? Therefore, now there's no condemnation. And so uh, there seems to be a shift there. And Paul's going to come and say, and the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you, singular free um, from the law of sin and death. And so, if you keep reading on the Romans eight, it seems like uh, Paul is saying, "Hey, this the predicament, the plight, mm-hmm. the mess that you're in in Romans seven now is no longer because we're in Christ. And so he'll go on to say that we're no longer obligated to the, fulfill the desires of our sinful nature. Mm-hmm. And so I think the context uh, is yeah. one of the main reasons that most people misread Romans seven aside from their personal experience.
0: That was a big one for me, and I, w- I want to get into the nitty-gritty exegetical stuff, but let, why don't we start with like a historical overview? Like, has this passage sure. always been kind of like debated in the church? Or who? Where's? Where, give us a quick kind of history of interpretation of, of
1: yeah, the passage. Yeah, very good. So the very first commentator that we have is Origen. So this takes us back to the second century. And for mm-hmm. Origen, Paul is obviously not talking about himself. Um, really? Origen says that uh, he puts on a persona, um, kind of does an impersonation. Of someone else, of uh, of an unbeliever who is under the law, and so that's the very first one. And uh, one thing to say, not only is he the earliest, but he's the he's a natural Greek speaker, and so he thinks Paul is using this rhetorical device um, that's used to almost use a foil for what the gospel is going to be. And so, and it's interesting because he seems to anticipate that people would say, "Well, wait, 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 why does Paul use the I?" And he says, "Well." Paul's just doing what we see the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament saints do, and they kind of show solidarity uh, with, uh, uh, and so he kind of uh, appeals to this Jewish tradition of confession uh, with uh, the lost. And, but he says that it's totally not Paul. Now, Origen, interestingly enough, he says it's uh, an unbeliever, an unbeliever, an unbeliever. But then at the end, he has like a, a pastoral heart and says, but Paul may be using this eye to relate to some of the people in the congregation. Who is that's their uh, experience, but he does that to bring them to the glory of Romans chapter eight. And so, Origins, our very first one that we have that deals with this. Erasmus follows suit. um, And I was in uh, Cambridge uh, uh, last month and I was at the pub overlooking where the uh, office of Erasmus was. But Erasmus also follows suit and says, Yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. And even tells us that no one before his time uh, considered Paul talking about himself. And so he thinks Paul puts on this mask, this persona um, a, as well, and uh, also appeals to the practice of what we see of the Old Testament saints doing this. The the next one that we have is Jerome. Um, and Jerome is really, Jerome's the guy who uh, translated the Latin Vulgate, amazing scholar. And Jerome uh, also has a, a series of letters that he wrote to uh, learned women during this time. They would they would send him questions and he would send them back. And so uh, a Uh, writes a letter and says, what in the world is Romans 7 talking about? Hmm. And so also Jerome comes, says Paul's not talking about himself, but instead he's putting on this mask, he's doing an impersonation. He also says that, uh, you know, I I probably need to write a book on this, maybe numerous books to explain it. But one thing is is that this is not Paul. Um, This is uh, Paul putting on uh, the mask uh, for the sake of his rhetorical effect. Why do do you think
0: they, so, and and those aren't in chronological order, right? So Erasmus is more what
1: 1500 yeah, yes. or, it's, it's Jero- uh, origin Erasmus uh, origin Jerome Erasmus yeah. sorry
0: no it's fine um why do you think they were so confident like I it, it, it was it for exegetical reasons or because of yeah they, they, or did they go did they come at the text believing like no Christians aren't enslaved to sin like we kind of come at the text more existentially of already thinking you're so way down to sin we're horrible and then we read this text and it's like yeah see But I wonder if they even had more, I mean, I'm just thinking like the ascetic tradition and their view of obedience and stuff was a lot different than kind of how we view it in American Christianity. But um. Yeah, almost
1: all of them appeal to what Paul says elsewhere, what he says says in Romans 8. And so they are reading it uh, contextual and says that if if this is Paul talking about himself, then he's contradicting everything else that he has said. Um, And if it's Paul contradicting himself. I forget if it was Jerome or Erasmus, but one of them says, you know, if, if Paul can't overcome sin, then none of us can overcome sin, which is interesting. When we get to the, it's totally not Paul group, they're going to say, exactly, they find consolation in that. But uh, these guys have said, no, no, uh, Paul is the one who says, I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. He's, he is the, the great apostle who um, it, it talks about being a temple of God, God's spirit speaking through him. And so they look and just place this one minority report. Because Romans 7, this, this uh, monologue, there's nothing else like it. There's nowhere else in Paul's letters or in the New Testament that has this idea that we as believers are utterly sinful and there's nothing good in us and we're sold as a slave. And so uh, for most of them, they're putting it side by side with what we see in the rest of scripture. I don't know if you remember Sesame Street, but the uh, Cookie Monster, we'd have the different cookies and one would look like the other. And it's like, Uh, One of these things is not like the other. One of these just doesn't belong. Uh, He sings a song. Do do you know this? Did you grow up on Sesame Street? I didn't grow up on
0: Sesame Street. Oh,
1: man. (laughs) How did you get through a PhD program without Sesame Street? Um, And uh, Conjunction, Junction, Watch Your Function Uh, from... uh, I forgot the name of that. But anyway, uh, yeah. So if you put Romans 7 side by side with all these other verses that are absolutely clear of what Paul says about himself Mm -hmm. and other believers, then it it just doesn't belong. And I think Cookie Monster would throw it away. Uh, yeah, and so so most of them are looking at it from the both what Paul says about himself, what Paul says about the other letters, what Paul says uh, about believers and the New Testament, and say that, that, that Paul must be doing something different here. So now, when did
0: uh, the, was it the Reformation when the Paul reading yeah started? Yeah, L- let me give let me give
1: one more because he's my favorite uh, yeah. is John Wesley. Oh, John yeah. Wesley is going to come and say that uh, not only is this a impersonation, but Paul is impersonating a Jew or someone wanting to be like a Jew under the law. So John Wesley is the first one that actually not only considers the context, but uh, not, but also considers the immediate context that Paul begins by saying, I'm speaking to those of you who know the law, and he's quoting the Mosaic law. And so John Wesley is the very first one that says, yeah, 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 right, 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 true, true, true. Um, he is doing an impersonation, but he's specifically impersonating a Jew or someone like maybe a God-fearer that is trying to live under the Mosaic law rather than the Holy Spirit. right. And so those are kind of like the the four OGs, if you will. Um, I I love what uh, Wesley says. He says that it's a person who's struggling with the law, trying to overcome the uh, sin with his own power. And it's like a dog that is chained. And the dog may bark, it may bitch, it may complain. uh, It may bite at its chain, but it can't be free. And so uh, it's just Uh quite vivid. And so Wesley's going to absolutely underline that uh, this is not the the believer, but this is uh, someone trying to live under the law. Rather than walking according to the spirit, which is another thing with Romans seven. There's no mention of the Holy Spirit right. anywhere else, and so this wretch uh, seems to be trying to pull himself up by his own bootstraps, to use a southern idiom.
0: I'm curious did that find its did Wesley's interpretation find its way into all Wesleyan kind of denominations? I mean, Methodist yeah,
1: basically, and- yeah. You mentioned earlier that the uh, post-conversion Paul, those who think that this is Paul as a believer, typical of every believer. Uh, you see that more in the Reformation tradition. In the Pietist tradition after Wesley, most take this as not Paul talking about himself or believers. If they're talking about a believer, it's someone who just became a believer or okay. someone on the route to becoming a believer. So someone who is uh, in the thralls of the conversion waiting for Romans 8.
0: Okay, interesting. Okay, <laughs> cool. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, Luther, Calvin, were they all? This is post conversion Paul. Sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Augustine's going to be our first one. And oh, it's Augustine. not young Augustine. It's it's old Augustine. So young Augustine, he follows suit. Um, he reads Origins, like yeah, <laughs> Origins got it uh, on the money. And then uh, he starts having these debates with the Pelagians, who are overemphasizing human uh, goodness, um, and uh, oh. ha- uh, this idea of perfection. And so he changes his he changes his tune because some. Um, Of this polemical battle that he's having, and so he's the very first one that says it's post-conversion, and so he rings a bell that can't be unwronged. But what's interesting is that he makes two qualifications. Uh, He says that when Paul says that I can't do the things that I want to do, he's not really impotent; he's not really powerless before sin. But his frustration is that he has to wrestle with sin in the first place. So it's not sin that he's falling under; it's he's just tired of saying no to temptation. And so that's his first qualification. So if this is Paul talking about himself, it's not that he is powerless before sin, but he's just so frustrated, like, I'm tired of the stinking temptation. I'm tired of even of the desire. And so he even like reads a paraphrase in where Paul says, uh, uh, "It's when I co- when I say I don't covet, it's not that I covet, it's just that I'm tired of the desire uh, to covet. And so that's his first qualification. The second one is that uh, Paul, when Paul says the things I want to do, uh, I, he, the frustration is that he doesn't, doesn't do it perfectly and he's reading the Latin and the Latin uh, even has this uh, perfection idea there. And so huh. he's not saying that can't do any good. He just can't do it perfectly. And and I obviously would agree with that, but so after August, Augustine, uh, you have um, uh, Aquinas, who's going to say, actually, both options are pretty good, uh, but I, I go with old Augustine. Uh, rather than young augustine so he takes a post-conversion view but doesn't really expound on it um, more than than that okay. um after aquinas uh, then you're going to have uh luther that's going to be the big dog and of course with luther he's going to say that no paul is utterly sinful he brings in the yeah we're both saints and sinners and it, it's almost like uh, a yeah. if you would have our characters today uh a dr jekyll mr hyde um uh, type idea or uh for the spider-man fans that listen to it uh you know, uh, an Osborne and Green Goblin or or a, a, a Smeagol um, and Gollum yeah. type character that he sees with human uh, nature. And uh, 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 Luther is going to have this idea that, yeah, there, there's nothing good inside of us. But what's interesting with Augustine and Luther, Luther also is commenting on this in response to these guys who read way too many books and uh, that that like Aristotle. Uh, that that he's using that are emphasizing this perfectionism as well. But Luther has this quote that I grew up hearing, and it may be legend, I'm not sure, but he said that, um, you know, before I understood the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whenever sin would knock on the door, I would answer it. But mm-hmm. now that I understand the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whenever sin knocks on the door, I let Christ get the door. And when <laughs> sin sees the nail prints, uh, then it obviously recedes. And so uh, you, you do have Luther at times when he's in this polemical that, This is totally Paul, y'all. Paul talking about himself because we're rats. We're just in misery. There's nothing good inside of us. But then you have these comments like, um, yeah, we do have a power to let Christ get the door. Mm -hmm. And so there's some inconsistency there. Uh, But uh, again, I think it's interesting that uh, it's a polemical battle that Luther has where he's going to really underscore. Uh, And so he's bringing kind of his supposition, presuppositions of though we are nothing but worms into it. I like what Winston Churchill said. All men are worms, but I'm a glow
0: worm. <laughs> did did Luther or or the Reformers, I guess, have exeg like strong exegetical reasons? Like did they wrestle with Romans seven against the backdrop of Romans eight, or I guess against the foredrop or whatever? Um, and the language and everything, or was it just kind of like, yeah, this is it was more like a theological uh, reading of it?
1: More the more the latter. Yeah. Um, and again, not to take any anything away from even Augustine, there's a legend about him about how after He uh, had become a believer. He was uh, walking through one of his old haunts and he runs into a a paramour who he used to Netflix and chill with all the time. And she sees him walking down the road and full of delight of what the night would surely hold. She begins to cry out to him, Augustine, it is I, it is I, it is I. And he turned and now conformed and transformed into the image of Christ, looks at her and says, I, but it is no longer I. And so it's interesting that uh, when it comes to practicality in their life and at least a legend that they do seem to think that the believer has power to say okay. no to sin. And so, yeah, so it's interesting to put those things side by side, but um mm. so Luther's going to be the one that uh, Luther and Calvin are going to be the ones who uh, really resonate with our popular view that we are powerless to sin. And, and August, I mean, uh, Calvin's going to come and say that our life is misery. The closer we get to God, uh, the more we realize that uh, we're nothing but worms and, uh, almost a self condemnation, mm-hmm. and so I don't know what they do with like what we see in Galatians. That the fruit of the joy is through the Spirit is joy and self control. But uh, yeah. yeah, so Cal- Calvin is going. Calvin and Luther have really uh, informed most of our traditions today. But of the New Testament scholars that are writing on Romans seven, it, it's mostly Baptists that um, are still holding on to the post conversion view. So Thomas Schreiner who you had on your podcast. Um, mm-hmm. He he kind of holds on to that drawing on Will Timmons, who has a Baptist background. Um, and then David Garland at Baylor has a new Romans commentary. But as far as I know, these are, and all three of those have Baptist um yeah. in their backgrounds. But um, outside of that, uh, it's pretty closely established that Paul's not talking about a post-conversion experience where a believer is powerless before well, sin.
0: So that's, you're talking about New Testament scholarship. Like you get the yeah, scholarly yeah, level yeah. and it's a, Far minority view that a, a New mm-hmm. Testament scholar with a PhD would read in Romans seven as a pre-conversion Paul, but why is it so popular in the pulpits? Most preachers, right? Would you say? I mean, in evangelical, let's just say yeah. non-Wesleyan evangelicalism. I don't, I don't know mm-hmm. about charismatic circles. I don't know how they read the passage, but. Most of the time when I hear someone reference, I don't, I don't even critique him anymore because I'm like, well, of course right. you're going to say it's yeah. post-conversion Paul. That's just in the air. Mm-hmm. Why yeah. is that? I mean, are they not Yeah, well, not I listened to
1: your podcast the other day and you had J.D. Greer on. And this is not to take away from J.D. at, at all. Yeah, he but he,
0: he went, mentioned in
1: passing. Yeah, <laughs> when you asked him why these uh, yeah. mature pastors are sexually explo- exploiting uh, their members, he pointed to Romans 7, like mm. Paul says. Um, our flesh is weak and there's nothing good in us. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think if the things that you don't want to do is that you're finding yourself doing is sexual exploitation, it sounds more like Romans two um, (laughs) and the hypocrite than it does Romans seven. And I think Paul would say to that person, if you're a pastor and you're struggling with sexually exploiting someone, then you need to step down immediately. Mm -hmm. And if if you're a church leader, you need to step down Mm -hmm. immediately and get counseling uh, for that. That's not Romans seven, but you even have this thing. It's this idea of I had a church member who left his wife and children for another church member. And I confronted him and just was begging him to reconsider. And he looked at me and says, well, it's like Paul, the things I want to do, I, I can't do. And so it comes to the point where people use it to excuse their sins. The heart wants what the heart wants. Uh, uh, or it doesn't care. I think that's uh, Emily Dickinson. Uh, or it's almost even a pie pie type idea. I am what I am. And that's what I am. And so they just kind of appeal to this Adamic nature that, well, we're just all in Adam. We can't do good. And we, we forget that Paul says that Adam's part of the old that's dead and gone and it's passing away. And now we put on Christ instead. But yeah, it just, it, it, it resonates so well. And uh, one of the, I'm working on a book right now and the, the, the book series is to take what is commonplace in scholarship and try to bring it to the busy pastor and student to let them know that if you are in Romans 7, you don't have to stay there. Um, Romans 8 is right next door.
0: Let's speak to Romans 8, Let's let's get into some of the exegetical arguments. So, let's start with arguments for your view, for our view, I guess, the 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 yeah. correct the correct way. <laughs> 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 I usually don't yeah, speak so boldly on theological yeah. I'm going to be an exception <laughs> for this episode. Um why does Romans 7 uh not describe a believer and does mm-hmm. describe somebody who is not yet in Christ?
1: Good. Yeah. Well, again, going back to origin and Erasmus and Jerome and Wesley, uh, if, if you start in Romans chapter five, because uh, most scholars think that Romans five through eight is yeah. kind of a, a good segment. And uh, Paul is talking about the justification that we have. He goes to Romans five twelve uh, through 21, where he's talking about what Adam did. And then he says, but guess what? There's a new Adam in town and his name is Jesus. And he had this obedience and his obedience leads to righteousness and grace, and you can serve either sin or you can serve obedience. And uh, then he brings this great question that I think we need to make sure we use as lenses when we come to Romans 6 and 7. Shall I continue in sin so that grace may abound? And Paul says, meganoita, no, 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 uh, We don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about that. Um, and so he sets up this this rhetorical question, uh, since we're under grace, uh Do we continue to sin so that grace may abound? And Paul says no. And so in Romans 6, um, Paul is going to underline, he's going to underscore, repetition, superfluous, uh, over and over and over again, sin is no longer the boss of me. Sin is no longer the boss of you. And so he uses a syllogism, kind of an Aristotelian rhetorical device where he says, okay, Jesus Christ died to sin once and for all with me, right, right? We died with Christ through baptism with me, right, right? Um, Therefore, we are dead to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, Paul realizes that uh, this is not a pie-in-the-sky, mawkish, saccharine idea. Sin is still knocking on the door. Sin is still coming at us, but it no longer has to reign inside of us. And so Wesley says, yeah, yeah, sure, sin remains, but it doesn't reign in our life anymore. It's no longer on the Iron Throne. Um, Instead, it's uh, in the trench that's coming after us. Um, And so, Paul, if you read Romans 6, Paul is going to say it louder for the people in the back so they can hear that sin is no longer our master. And he says uh, that's who we used to be. And now we want to make sure uh, that uh, we uh, walk under obedience and righteousness. And then we get to Romans chapter seven, verse one. And Paul seems to get Phoebe to look at the Phoebe's one who's reading the letter, right? To the Romans to maybe turn to the audience uh, who have more uh, uh, love the law a lot and says, now we're going to speak to those of you who know the law. Um, The law here, uh, almost all scholars believe that Paul's talking about the Mosaic Law. Um, And we know in Paul's churches that uh, this was often an issue of uh, what do we do with the law. Paul said some quite nasty things about the law. But if you look at Romans 6, 1 through 12, and Romans 7, uh, 1 through 6, 6, um, he kind of has the same type of argument. Um, Although here he's going to use a parable. C.H. Dodd, a New Testament scholar, uh, thinks that the parable is awful thinks that Paul just does a really bad job when it comes to parables, but he says, okay, there's this woman, uh, she's married to a man, and she gets with another man while she's married. That would be unlawful, right? But what happens if the husband dies? Now she is free to be with another man. So here he switches the parable and says, but guess what? We, as the woman, have died, so that now we can belong to a new man, and that new man is Jesus Christ. And so in verses five and six, before he gets into this soliloquy and monologue of the wretch, um, he says um, that, so now we no longer walk according to the old way of the law that leads to sin, 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 flash, 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 death, that death, death. But instead we walk into the newness of the spirit. And most New Testament scholars think that this is kind of the outline. So uh, verse five, the old way of the law mm-hmm. is going to be fleshed out, um, enumerated, unpacked in seven Seven through 25. And then the, the verse six is uh, what Paul really wants to talk about and move the believer from the Romans seven to Romans eight uh, and walking according to the spirit. And so that context really reframes uh, Romans seven. And then we get to Romans seven, and Paul brings in this rhetorical device where he asks a question again and he answers that question. And so uh, is the law sin? Now, again, Paul said some really nasty, mm-hmm. bad, horrible, seemingly bad, uh, uh, bad things about the law. In uh, chapter six, uh, chapter five, the law sli- slips in the back door in order to increase trespasses. Um, he had even said in Romans seven before that the law uh, stirs sin up. That's hmm. one thing for the law to be weak before sin, but it's another thing for it to stir it up. And it's yeah. not just there, but look at what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, after the where, oh, death is your sting, where is your victory? Um, he talks about how uh, the stinger of sin and death is the law. And then look yeah. at 2 Corinthians 3. Paul seems to say that the law leads to death. Anytime the law is proclaimed, uh, it, it blinds people so they can't see the truth of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so here he begins to defend the law. And a lot of New Testament scholars think that Romans 7, uh, we're so vain, we probably think it's about us, um, but really it's about the law. And Paul's defense, not just of the law, but his vindication of his theology of the law. Mm-hmm. And so he asks two rhetorical questions that helps us follow his. His train of thought: seven, um, seven, and seven. Twelve. the law, sin, and did the law um, intend to bring death? And so, really, what Romans seven is about is this is about the law, and then someone who connects with the law. I'll stop there. And see if you have any questions or comments well, or first time. of all, that's
0: the first time I've heard you say you're so vain without singing. Um, So that's a. <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm, I have a, I have a sore throat this morning. So you're I'm, off your a scary
0: Audience, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I do have some questions. So. First of all, you mentioned that the the analogy, the marriage analogy. If I I remember looking at this years ago when I used to read Romans, <laughs> when you do your PhD on the Book of Romans, it kind of steals the joy out of it. So I had to stop.
1: I disagree. I went the other way. You did, yeah.
0: <laughs> all I see is fifteen different ways to interpret every single verse when I read it now. So in my devotions, it just doesn't work anymore. Yeah, it's interesting. So the, you know, but the but if the husband dies and you're free from the marriage. Therefore, we've died. So, are we the dead husband, or are we the wife that's been freed? Is that where the analogy is? Like, well, it's... yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, something gets convoluted. Something gets clever. I, I kind of follow the, the the other side of it. It's a it's irony. It's in oh. uh, traditional irony, is a surprise. So we're expecting the husband to die, but instead, it's we have died with oh. Christ. It gives us that parallel that we see in Romans 6. So and Paul's so, being... And we the church. Yeah, I think he's trying to be clever, but okay. uh, I often try to be clever and, some, clever and sometimes it doesn't land uh, there, but we're the ones who have died with Christ. Therefore, we can belong to Christ.
0: I want to underscore, because for me, this was the first time the light bulb went on with reading Romans 7 and light of Romans 8. So you mentioned in passing, I just want to underscore it, that Romans 7, 5, and 6 seems to be a clear outline of Rome, the rest of Romans seven and eight. So Romans, Mm -hmm. and if you're, if you have a Bible, you can look at it or just write it down. Like look at Romans seven, five, and I'm saying, and not just me, but lots of scholars, Romans seven, five is like a summary of the rest of Romans seven and Romans seven, six is like a summary of Romans eight. So let me read Romans seven, five for when we were in the flesh, the (laughs) sinful passions operated through the law in every part of us. And bore fruit for death. That's that's when we were not in Christ. That, that's a, clearly a statement about pre-conversion. But, verse 6, 6, but now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the older, old letter of the law. That's the, just the language in that verse ends up being repeated in all throughout Romans eight, even even the but now. I think is that the same in the Greek? But mm-hmm. now? Um yeah, it is. Yeah. Romans eight one. So and then he goes on to kind of unpack yeah, those yeah, two yeah. uh verses. I remember talking to Tom Schreiner about that years ago. This is ten over ten years ago. I'm like, what do you do with that? Like this seems like clear. Like he's setting this up. This is outline. He's like, yeah, I don't know, maybe, you know, but yeah, he, he wasn't as impressed with it. To me, it's just that was like, oh, this even the very language he's using there is like mm-hmm. he he's setting up how he's going to unpack that language later on. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, you do have this, uh, I mean, in between, Pat. I don't want to say in between. It's not in between for Paul, but Romans seven seven through twelve that mm-hmm. has its own interpretive things, right? Maybe let's just jump then to Romans seven what fourteen to twenty five or thirteen. To, where do you make the break? 13 to yeah, 25?
1: Yeah, I, I, I usually go to straight to 14, but 13 is fine. We can bring that in there as okay. well, this rhetorical question uh, that Paul is using.
0: Yeah, let's go to the actual passage. What are some things here yeah. um, in the narrow context that show that it's not talking about, um, that, it, that it must be talking about a a, um, a non-believer?
1: Yeah, very good. So and 7, let's go to verse 14 here. Um, Joey has we know Greek the Greek
0: text out, by the way.
1: <laughs> the law is spiritual. Um, and then he says, but I myself am a fleshly, sarcanos. Um It's interesting that um, mm. in the Greek, uh, Paul uses not just uh, am, I am, he uses I myself am, the ego a me, this yeah. emphatic ego. Um, and so some people think that even this is Paul giving a clue that he is shifting into this impersonation. So Stanley Stowers talks about the speech in character, the prosopopoeia. it's fun to say. That uh, here with the rhetorical question that Paul is asking and um, in, in identifying someone that this would be a clear clue to the audience who was very familiar with this trope um, that with, with this rhetorical device that Paul was shifting and putting on the mask, but uh, that Paul is saying that he is fleshly. Uh, we don't see this anywhere else uh, in scripture. Paul referring to himself as fleshly after being a believer or of believers, um, except for this... Um, irony in uh, first Corinthians where he's going to talk about these fleshly believers, but Paul's going to t- say these, you know, it's where he gets frustrated with them. And it's like, I want to give you guys meat, but you're still nursing. The, the, and there it's not that this is the expectation of Christians. It's that, Hey, you guys need to move beyond that. It's time to stop mm, being uh, this fleshly believer. But um, so th- this emphasis here, I myself, some scholars think that the ego me, if you have any Greek readers in your group, that this is Paul saying I in my own nature, uh, I separated from Christ I apart from Christ um, and so my my interpretation is that this is actually Paul talking about himself before Damascus road before God knocked him off his donkey uh, and uh, so we can talk about later the different ideas of who this I might be but okay. uh, I myself in the past is how I would take this um, was fleshly without the spirit of Christ in me
0: so so to be clear there's even if we talk about a post or non-converted person, even that there's a debate. Is it talking about, is it Paul's still autobiography? Is it a generic human? Is it specifically yeah. a Jew? Certainly it's a Jew because he talks about loving the law. I mean, no non-Jew in the first century would have said they love the Jewish law. It doesn't make sense. But so you think this is this is Paul really reflected on his autobiography before Christ?
1: Yeah. I, I could be persuaded the other way. Um, what my, my main contingent is that Paul is not talking about himself as a post-conversion right, okay. and the typical Christian life, uh, but uh, if we want to talk about some in a moment, uh, the different possibilities of who the I is, we can bring in uh, that as well. But okay. I think this is Paul giving autobiography, bringing in going back to his roots. Again, I can't sing that, but um, uh, so he's going to bring in Adam language, he's going to bring in bring in Israel language, and also uh, language of his non-believing brothers and sisters that he's going to talk about in Romans nine through 11. And so, yeah, in the Greek, it's interesting because it's, he begins it with the ego and Preston, you're a Greek reader. And you know, Paul doesn't often use ego, a me, Mm. I, I myself am, um. It, but and so already, there's some something that that's interesting that's going on there. But also, he swi- he switches. I myself have been sold as a captive, sold as a slave to sin. Yeah. You Notice that that verb there, and I don't get into the weeds of all this Greek uh, in my book. But uh, the verb there is a perfect participle. So you have a periphrastic. Um. So it's uh, this. He is he is screaming it as loud as he can. I, whoever this I is, am sold as a slave to sin. Now again, if you look at Romans six, what he's he said over and over again. Thanks be to God, you're no longer sold as a slave to sin. And so it seems like there's a controversy, a contradiction, yeah. uh, even at this point that we would say this can't be Paul talking about a post conversion believer. And, and
0: that's where Christians they'll read that when they you know just got off porn or slept with a girlfriend or something. Like yes, see, yes, yes, I'm like Paul. Okay, mm-hmm. we can have that experience. And I and I yeah. um, and we'll get to some of the pastoral stuff li- li- later. But like. Mm-hmm do you think it's just so easy, so natural to, for modern Western Christians to, to kind of feel this right. And then to see the passage mm-hmm. yeah. and just immediately want to read it that way. But like you said, that if you just think just exegetically, where else do we see Paul describing the Christians as being sold in the bondage to sin? I mean, just in chapter five, chapter eight, he says the exact opposite.
1: Yeah. So you would have some like, uh, Jimmy Dunn, our, uh, Gross uh, Dr. Fata, um, <laughs> he's going to say that here we have like this schizophrenic Paul. You're uh, saying to, gross, uh, you're using the, the... German,
0: <laughs> the German gross, not the English gross. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right. right. All those yeah. outfits were pretty gross. when he...
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, So th- and for uh, Douglas Mood, this clinches the argument here that Paul okay. can't be talking about himself or the believer, um, yeah. lest And so you brought up uh, Tom Schreiner earlier. Uh, Tom is going to bring in the already not yet paradigm uh, tension to bring in that, that uh, we already are free from sin, but we're not yet free from sin. And I have no problem with that tension in Paul's uh, letters everywhere else. And so uh, he's going to bring that up. Um, Will Timmons, uh, Timmons has a a book, a a monograph on Romans 7 with Cambridge University Press. Very sophisticated, very well done. And Tom in his new commentary draws a lot on will and then david garland at baylor draws a lot on will as well but all three of those if i'm correct breathe this already not yet so what paul is saying is yeah yeah you're already set free from sin but not yet set from sin and my pushback to that would be what you just said earlier um, paul doesn't use an already not yet here he begins and ends this uh, uh, monologue with a back then but now so i think of back back then this is who we were but now and so Romans 8, therefore, now there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But let's give it, let's give it to uh, Tom and company that it is already not yet. If you actually look at uh, already not yet with Paul, it's, it's better stated as already not fully rather than already not yet. Already not yet becomes a already not really. Um, so we're already set free from sin, uh, but we're not fully set free from sin. Sin continues to barrage us. It continues to come at us bro um but uh and so yeah it would be already not fully I, I, every time we see paul talking about this um I and so like what he says in second corinthians 7 uh so out of reverence with god we're perfecting holiness out of this reverence for god so we already are holy we're not fully holy we're perfecting that or what he says in philippians 3 um not that i've already arrived i'm not perfect yet but one thing i do forgetting what is behind i press on to grab hold of that which christ has already grabbed a hold of for me and so there is this already not fully idea, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. It's more of a back then, but now. But let's give him that. Let's say okay, already not yet. Still, um, when we do see Paul talk clearly about already not yet, it's a already not yet, therefore no longer. So we see in Romans chapter eight, he's going to say that yeah, we we all already are set free from sin and death, but but not yet because we still will die. The believers are still going to mm-hmm. die. All flesh fades away. The flowers of the field, um, to, to borrow from. Uh, uh, Peter, um, but then he says, "So therefore, no longer fulfill the desires of your sinful uh, flesh." Or the most clear place that we see it is Romans thirteen, the end of Romans thirteen, where uh, the 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 darkness is fading away, the dawn is here, uh, mm-hmm. the day of your redemption is closer now than when you first believed, and so you have that already, not yet, where the 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 twilight or, or the dawn of that. But what does Paul say? Therefore, no longer. Um, satisfy the desires of your flesh, but instead put on uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and don't yeah. even think about how to, to do it. And so e- even if we do have an already not yet, Paul never just stops and says, so that you're going to be utterly powerless to continue to sin, sin, sin. All you do is sin, 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 no matter what. Instead, Paul's going to come and say, no, already not yet. Therefore, no longer identify mm-hmm. with the old Adam and live according to your flesh.
0: So you're saying there there is an already not yet component to sanctification where we still do have our sinful flesh with us, the spirit, there's a war going on and we're waiting full liberation in the resurrection. But the, the language and imagery that the new Testament uses to describe that state is very different than what we're seeing here.
1: Yeah. You know, and so with yeah. the already not fully idea, the expectation that we bring to the table is that we're going to lose a sin more than we're going to win right. to sin. But in scripture, when we do sin, when someone does struggle with uh, porn, uh, that should be the exception to the rule, not the rule. The rule is, is that right. we we don't answer the door to bring Martin Luther's uh, a, a legend back. Instead, more often than not, we let Christ get the door. We as believers can fall in the Romans 7, but that's not who we're supposed to be. Um, and we need to get out of there as soon as possible. Okay. But this guy in Romans 7, he lives there. I have been sold, this perfect um, participle. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself have been sold as a slave to sin. And so that, that's one of the, the, the key verses okay. for me that says this can't be Paul talking about post conversion.
0: Let's keep going and we'll probably have to maybe speed yeah. up walking through the passes. But what are some other statements that you're like, yeah, this cannot be describing a, a believer?
1: Yeah. So if we keep going on, um, so uh, it, the, the thing, I, I don't know, you have this idea of Paul saying, I don't know what I do. Um, and uh, we, it, it's hard to think Paul not understanding and knowing what he, he does um, because we, we see the to, to seem that. He understands exactly what he does. He says in uh, Corinthians, uh, we're not, uh, we we understand uh, the enemy's thing. And then he's going to talk about, it's not me, but sin dwelling within me. Um, And so here we have this idea of sin still living inside of Paul's life. Now, nowhere else in scripture do we have this idea of sin dwelling still Hmm. in the believer. And so I I don't even know if that's the idea. It seems like when Christ takes the throne, he's going to kick sin out the door uh, to the curve. Uh, But um, everywhere else, we don't see Paul saying, not I, but X, it's not sin. So we see, for example, his very first autobiography, Paul says, it's no longer I, but Christ that lives within me. And so we see that uh, this contradicts what we see in Galatians chapter two, which uh, one of the not Paul group brought out. Uh, we see it, um, the not I, but X paradigm in first Corinthians fifteen 10. I, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm abnormally born, uh, not, um, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And uh, mm. it's not I that works it, but it's, it's Christ that's working it inside of me. Um, and so this idea of uh, sin controlling Paul, so that he can't do what he wants to do that's indwelling inside of that, there's nothing good in me, uh, it, it seems to stand in stark contradiction to what we saw in Romans uh, chapter 6. Even this idea, uh, I am a wretch. Um, uh, th- this word for wretch was often used uh, for someone who was absolutely in bondage uh, to sin uh, that was there. And, and if he, let's back it up to verse 23. He talks about not only being sold as a captive to sin, but um, uh, but I see another law that's working in my members that is making more with the law of my mind and uh, taking me captive uh, with the law of sin. And so that, that's working in my members. Again, reading into context, we see in Romans 6, this members, the uh, bodily uh, body parts are all over, where Paul says, no longer use your instruments, uh, your, your members, uh, for unrighteousness, but instead use it for righteousness. And then, so, uh, when Paul says, who will rescue me from this body of death, Paul knows who's going to rescue him from this mm. body of death, right? It's Jesus. And so then we have, uh, what many people would be on the other uh, argument, uh, that, uh, what we see in verse 25 B, uh, verse 25, uh, where he says, but thanks be to God, uh, through right. Christ. And so we have this phrase. And so Paul answers it. And so even origin says, and, and those who follow origin said at this point, Paul can't stand it anymore. He, he can't. Uh, he, and so he takes off the mask for a moment and says, Woo, thanks be to God. Now, the last time we see this phrase, thanks be to God, is in chapter six, where he says, you formerly were enslaved to sins. But thanks be to God that now you walk um, and, and you've been delivered over to the pattern of the teaching that we have.
0: So 25A is where he comes up for a quick breath and yeah. reflects on what he's been saying from a Christian perspective. That's the only time though that he does that, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. So so even, th-
0: even 25B, he's kind of summarizing. So then with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh to the law of sin. And some people there, that's where some people read in the already not yet. They're like, see, this is clearly a Christian because he, what non-Christian would say he's a slave to the law of God. I'm like, Every single first century Jew would say that. <laughs> like and, and exactly, I think this is the yeah. number one reason why modern Christians think this is a believer is because they don't they're not approaching the passage mm. from the category of a first century Jew. Because the main one of the main arguments I hear people say is like, well, what non-believer would say they delight in the law? Again, I would say exactly. like every single first century Jew would say that. <laughs> like mm, the whole point yeah. is not Paul talking about just an abstract non-believer, he's talking about. A, a Jew trying to be free from the law of Moses and finding it not having the power to liberate. Only the spirit can liberate from sin. Is that, I mean, yeah, for any sure. thoughts on that?
1: so Will, Will Timmons has an article that says that the Psalmist Psalm 119 is the eyes that the, the, the person here, his doppelganger. Because you see that Psalm 119 is, I love the law. Give me some more law. I can't get enough of your law. Yeah. Law, law, law. Love it, love it, love it. I want to rub, <laughs> rub it all over me. Um, but, um, but, but it. But he also has this idea that he can't obey the law, and it even ends with this confession. And so uh, I, he, he argues that um, if you want to understand Romans seven, you need to understand Psalm 119, where hmm. you have this Jew who loves the law, but uh, this, and, and not not just 119, but if you look at the history of Israel. Uh, those who loved the law often failed to obey the law. Um, and so, uh, and then John Goodrich um, connects this passage of being sold as a slave to sin to Isaiah 49 and 50, where you're also going to have this cry of who's going to rescue me? Can God rescue me from this? And so those are two articles that seem mm-hmm. to uh, really show Paul's solidarity, his continuity that he has with these Jews who have a frustration that they want to obey the law but they can't because it hasn't been written on their heart yet to bring in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, the new covenant.
0: Yeah. The, it also uh, 18, 18 to me, again, is another like how, how can this be a believer for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no, my translation says ability to do it. What Christian, yeah. I mean, cause we, we could say we've been overwhelmed by sin conquered by sin. Well, trying to use language care, we can say we've succumbed to sin and sin captivated us and bam, and we fell in and, you know, slept with somebody we shouldn't have or whatever, like, you know, hit somebody in the face and we shouldn't, you know, outburst of anger. Like we, we, yes, we have that where we're like, ah, oh, sin overcame me, but we should never say I lacked the ability. I, I didn't possess the ability to not sin.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. I mean, that, yeah. that's just not, yeah. <clears throat> no Christian can yeah. say that theologically.
1: Right. Wesley makes a quip that, uh, with redemption like this, who needs bondage? <laughs> so it, are, are you, are you telling me that he was a funny guy? I didn't know he was Christ, so he is, clever. Yeah. That the power of Jesus Christ is not enough to help us overcome our sin. And so it comes to this idea that we can do all things through Christ, except live a holy life. Uh, you know, Christ came to set us free from everything except for the power of sin that's ruling over us. And so, yeah, it's it, it, it it's quite absurd uh, for me. And again, not to make light of the battle and the struggle with sure. sin. I, I feel that. I fall to sin, but that's not who we're supposed to be. Um, and so it still remains. Um I and uh, there are times that we fall to it, but God is faithful, and He always provides the way out. So no temptation has seized us except what is common. And when we face that temptation, God is going to provide the way out. He's going to lead us from that. And so um, mm-hmm. for for many times, when I sin, it's not because I, uh, have to sin it's because I choose to sin. I know that I can walk away from it. I know that I can let Christ get the door, but mm-hmm. I choose to open it anyway what
0: well, what here's Mike what about what we now know about the neurology of addictions Yeah. And right. let me just so the only time i've experienced like what I would consider an addiction was um a few years. Both pre-conversion and post-conversion I was I was addicted to nicotine. I chewed mm, tobacco yeah. like a baseball player. Yeah. And I remember mm. like just being so it was almost robotic. Like I I just mm. couldn't not yeah. put a dip in. I couldn't imagine that the the thought of like having a conversation at night with my buddies in my apartment and not having a dip in. It was like I couldn't do it. Like I just yeah. It was almost like it was – that's the only word I can use, like robotic. Like my brain was just so rewired. And now – I mean that was like 25 years ago. And mm. even I had my first year of my I, – I came to Christ. And even for that first year, it was still there. And then it really was kind of a miraculous – like I don't know. Like I got si- – I was really sick for a week. And when you're sick, even if you're addicted to nicotine, you typically like lay off it. And then after that week, I'm like, ah, I got a week under my belt. I probably should quit this habit. And it it was pretty grueling, but it – you know. I got free from it. So maybe, maybe the, <laughs> but you know, even today, you know, you talk to genuine solid Christians who are addicted mm-hmm. to porn, drugs, alcohol, yeah. um, whatever. And like, I would, I can only imagine what that would be like. I could, I could, I could pastorally see where this passage, it doesn't mean this is what Paul's saying, but like I could see some residents here where, where it's not just a, you know, Bob Newhart. You know, stop it or choose right or whatever. Yeah. It's like no, there's something yeah. deeper ne- neurologically mm-hmm. going on here where you you yeah. are just have been through bad choices over the years, but almost now it's just become you know overcome by by mm-hmm. sin. You know, where it's not just a struggle. It's like all right, I'm going to choose choose not to. It's like well, it's more than mm-hmm. just a raw choice. Like, yeah, is that I don't know. Have you wrestled with that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, for especially sure. for people listening yeah. that are like. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's me. I, I, it's yeah. not like I want to. I just, I, I feel like something is taking control of my brain and I can't not do this thing. Yeah.
1: And, and if that is that person, uh, I want them to understand God's grace, his compassion, his love um, is smothered over this. And God doesn't want them to continue to walk in that addiction. I don't think Romans 7 is talking about neurological um, <laughs> addiction, but I, but but that is a real thing in our world today. And so in the last chapter, I have a so what. Um, so if you are a believer and Romans 7 is your experience rather than Romans 6 and 8, what do you need to do? And uh, I always avoid alliteration uh, as a Baptist, but um, I have uh, four alliterations here. So, And the first one is just clarity, clarifying, um, understanding, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, uh, knowing that it's God that works on that side of us. Is our is our frustration a temptation or is it is it sin itself? And because, again, Augustine's going to say that Yeah, we're going to get frustrated with having to say no, um, but that's the difference between being enslaved to sin. Um, And so we need to clarify that sense. Also clarify that, you know what, it may be that we have more freedom today than we did yesterday. And so when Luther, to bring back his response to you saying that the Christian can't do any good, he says, well, what Paul really means is that the Christian can't do as much good, as good as he would like, he or she would like. And so I'm like, okay, sure, that's fine. I know that I can't do as much good, as I want. But that doesn't mean I can't do any good. And so Socrates says that the unexamined life is not worth living. I would say the unexamined faith is not worth having. So examine your faith. And when you actually look at your life, you may see that the Spirit of God, the counseling that you have, and uh, the friends that you have, and the confession that you've been given, has given that you're closer now than you were yesterday, than you were a year ago. And so finding that clarity, understanding what actually is the problem, why am I doing that? Uh, Another important thing that we see in the early church is confession, um and it's not like the confession, like oh yeah, um, I did something bad last night. Or again, growing up as a Baptist, um, I have an unspoken prayer request. Uh, in, in the early church, uh, and Scott McKnight talks about this in his uh, James commentary. Uh, it was specific. It was detailed. Um, they, 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 and the more specific it is. And so, as Protestants, as reformers, we've lost this um, idea of really confessing. I just confess to, to God, and it, it's it's harder for me to confess to you a sin that I've done, uh, which seems odd, right? Because you're a sinner just like me. You know me more um, Mm -hmm. than the holy transcendent God. But I think it's um, God inside of you in the flesh, me confessing specifically what I've done is what leads to that freedom. And so it's interesting that James ends his uh, commentary, uh, sorry, his uh, letter talking about the importance of confession, confession, confession. And so I think if we believers put just as much value in confessing our sins, as we do um, preaching the gospel, um, our evangelism, whatever it may be, then we would have more freedom from that. And so it needs to be more like Chunk on the Goonies. Do you remember? Yeah. Exactly. And Chunk, yeah, they, they hold him down and he like, tell, tell us what all bad that you did. And he like goes back and says, you know, well, I knocked my sister down the stairs. And this one time I went to the, to the theater and I had to fake <laughs> puke. And I threw it down. And it was worse I ever did. And So I, I think that's the kind of, and so Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Life Together One of the best ways to get through Romans 7 to Romans 8, if you will, is to um, read life together. And he talks about the the vital importance of confession. And so Mm. if you're struggling with that, have you confessed Mm. it to someone uh, specifically? Another thing that maybe relates to you is cultivating godliness. So uh, we see that godliness doesn't just happen. We have to train ourselves for righteousness. And so Paul writes to Timothy and says, hey, I want you to set an example in, in speech and life and all these things, but you have to do it by training yourself for godliness. And so there's a training exercise that comes involved with this. Um, Seneca, my, my boy, I have to mention him at least once per podcast, right? Um, he, he talks about that when, when it comes to people training for virtue, you have three different uh, types of people. The first type is those who they, they don't need anybody to train them. They're just self motivated. They get up at four a.m. and go for a run for twenty miles, and you know it's easy for them. Um, and most people of us we're not like that. Um, instead, what we need is a running partner, someone that mm. uh, we get up out of the bed because I know Preston's waiting for me uh, to 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 start that run. And we need someone that has that accountability, someone to spot us uh, when we need mm. that. And he says the last of those, which is the majority. Of people who want to uh, strive for virtue um, and to overcome their flesh is we need someone who is like a personal trainer or even like a drill sergeant that barks us out of bed and that uh, pushes us beyond. And so um, I think clarification, confession, and then cultivating, those are three things that can help most people get to Romans 8. Um, okay. Again, it's not gonna happen overnight for most people, um, but it's that, that, that process yeah. that we're inching along and getting in that. But bringing specifically to your point, the, uh, the, the last C is, uh, counseling. Um, fortunately, why, when we were growing up, at least in my context, counseling was, you know, the head shrinker it was a bad thing, but yeah, fortunately too. today yeah. we're, we're embracing counseling and therapists. And, um, if, if confession just to a brother, that may not be enough. You need to go to a professional counselor. Um, if you're dealing with a sexual addiction or, uh, mm-hmm. addiction to uh, chemicals or whatever it may be, um, that, that we have that, that importance of, uh, God, we don't have a problem going to a medical doctor and seeing God help us out through the medical doctor. So also how much more, if we're dealing with a mental illness or addiction, mm-hmm. should we go and allow God to work through those? And so, um, yeah, that, that, that would be my, my point. If That's you, if you have an addiction, go, go to counseling because God has, has, will work through the, them.
0: Do you have a title and publication date of your book? So again, Joey's writing or has written did you finish it or you're you're...
1: yeah i'm waiting for michael gorman's uh, roman's commentary i ordered it i want to work it in and then i'll send it off to uh, mike bird and Derek uh, brown they're the uh, editors uh, for it it's in the Lexum snapshot series her Her did the first one uh schreiner um the silva and and then mine's in that list with it the title right now and if any of your listeners or you can help me out i'm not just overjoyed with it it's uh the things i want to do reframing Romans seven. Um, so I wanted to do like, um, the, I grew up listening to white snake. You remember his first song? So here we go again. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, when scholars talk about the, I, the Greek word is ego. So I want to do something like, here we go again, rather than here we go again, but too dad joke ish. I know it's too uh, silly, but uh, I'm a father now, so I can uh, make dad jokes for sure. But yeah, yeah so the things, the things I want to do, colon, reframing Romans seven. You
0: think, and you, you think it'll be out this time next year?
1: I hope so. I'm not quite sure how quick the turnaround yeah. is. Would like Things some, are slow these but days. But I'd, I'd love yeah. to be out um, okay. uh, at the end of this year, if not the beginning of next year. If
0: anybody still needs to be more convinced of this reading for me, uh, I mean, I've, we've already, uh, I, I think we've given some, big arguments. We didn't deal with the pushbacks. Try writing out or typing out uh, Romans 7.14 through Romans 8.11. Get rid of the verses, get rid of the paragraph breaks, and just read it twice. That's it. Do that. And if you still think that Romans 7.14 to 25 is talking about a believer, then read it again. (laughs) (laughs) Like that that contrast, like the the chapter break is terrible. Like the contrast, it's one mainstream of thought, 7.14 to 8.11, and that eight one to 11 is obviously describing a believer, but the very language there is, I think <laughs> you mm-hmm. think playing off of what he just said previously. So yeah, Joey, let thanks me, so let much let for coming on the podcast. Uh, yeah. Yeah. One more book re- recommendation.
1: Yeah. So edited by Terry Wilder, it's four
0: perspectives. So if
1: you enjoy the point counterpoint type oh, um, yeah. reading, uh, it's four views on Roman seven or four perspectives on Roman seven. Grant Osborne does the traditional post-conversion. Um, although I think it's a bit nuanced and I, and I, I like it. Um, Stephen Chester, um, looks at the pre-conversion Paul, which is the what the one that I would follow if you're interested. Uh, Mark Seifried comes in and oh. talks about kind of this confessing I, um, maybe it's just three. I, I don't I don't I think it's like three perspectives on Paul and they go point counterpoint. Okay. It's, 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 it's a great way to kind of hear, hear all sides of the story.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks Joey for coming on the podcast. Yeah. If anybody wants to study under Joey at Denver seminary. They are always accepting students, so check it out. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Joey, for uh, walking us through Romans 7. I hope it was helpful for our listeners who are interested in this important passage. Love you, bro. Peace. Amen. is part of the Converge Podcast Network.